So while Whitman says uh, God's mean-spirited, he's a bully, he's bent on revenge. In other words, it's his fault. This world is a mess because God is mean-spirited. The clip we just saw is from the movie Noah that uh, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and it's a summation. He doesn't quote scripture exactly, but it is a summation of the Bible's teaching that God actually created everything in its place and made it good. Uh, created man and women, uh, said they were very good, and that man is actually responsible, humanity is actually responsible for the sin and the brokenness in this world. Well, which one is it? Can't be both at the same time. Uh, one is true, therefore the other is false. Uh, but this is certainly uh, an important question. This is one of the central objections to the Christian faith. How could the world be such a mess if God is so good? And if we're going to be able to share the reason for the hope that is in us, if we're going to be able to have a conversation like this, we need to be able to wrestle with this type of question. So we're going to do that this morning uh, by looking at a passage in Genesis. We're actually going to briefly reread one of the passages we had last week. Now we're going to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. So you can turn your Bibles or follow on the screen. We're going to begin with Genesis 2, 15 through 17, which was part of last week's study, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump to chapter 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit, the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was a tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I'm glad you see the re real life coming out in this passage, right? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, come to this place uh, and worship this morning. We thank you for the chance to see friends, to 
reconnect with folks that maybe we haven't seen for a week or, or maybe we've been out of town a little and haven't seen for a while. Lord, thank you for the friendships and the relationships that are part of Green Tree Community Church. Father, thank you for the opportunity to lift our voices in praise and in worship. We've sung of your holiness and your goodness and your beauty. Father, thank you that you invite us to come to you in prayer at any moment of any day and that as we worship you, we can, we can uh, fill that worship with words and emotions to you. Father, now as, as we pray that you would come and speak to us, we uh, pray that you would help us to worship you with our minds, with our intellect, uh, with our emotions, our spirit. Father, we don't come here to hear the words of man. They're just simply not that important. They're just one more person's opinions. If we don't hear your word, then this is a great exercise in futility. But Father, this is a question that is central to uh, the outcome of this, of this life. Where did this brokenness originate? How did it happen? Who's to blame? And can anything be done? So Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand the way of what you want to say to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, here's the sermon in a sentence. It goes like this. Until we, humanity accept our culpability for rejecting God's friendship and the subsequent ramifications, we will never embrace his grace and his mercy. Or another way of looking at it is the way up is actually the first step is down. Uh, we've got to see ourselves for who we are if we're ever going to fully comprehend and, and grasp and embrace God's grace and mercy. Let me give you a very brief recap of last Sunday. If you weren't here, let me encourage you, not because I was the preacher, but because it really ties in to this week. You're going to be a little bit lost this week, even with the recap, uh, outside the context of last Sunday. So you can listen to that on our podcast, on our website, if you would like. But last week, we talked about what it meant to be created in the image of God. And there were four things that we mentioned. The first was that being created in the image of God according to Genesis chapter 1, means that we are intellectual, that we are spiritual, and that we are relational. That's different than any other creature uh, that God has formed on this earth. So to be made in his image means those things. Secondly, we noted that God created a glorious world and he put us in charge. He allowed us to have this as somewhat of an inheritance. Uh, We are the chief stewards of the planet. Uh, which we occupy, and that we have a responsibility. Uh, But when God created this, this was beautiful and glorious, and it was a perfect habitat for humanity. The third thing we noted was that God has given us these wonderful human, unique partnerships, right, between man and woman, and that that up until what we read this morning, (laughs) that relationship was intact, it was life-giving, and it was Glorious. The fourth thing we saw last week was that God built his relationship with us on trust, on a genuine friendship, uh, giving us free will and giving us the opportunity to choose to love him in return for his love. So when God puts Adam in the garden and he says, you, you see that tree over there, that tree is there as a representation of our relationship. And it's there so that you can choose every day to love me because I first loved you. You choose to not eat of that tree is a choice to trust that you and I are friends and that I really do love you and I really do want the best for you. And so that relationship that God established between himself and his human creation was a relationship built on trust, offering genuine friendship. Now, 
if you look at the world around you, right, and maybe you didn't have to look any further than your drive on the way to church this morning, right, you would say, you know what, that's not the story of humanity. That's not my personal experience. Uh, the world is broken, and, I, and I've been hurt by the brokenness of this world. You might even say, you might be willing to say, and, and I've even maybe uh, once or twice hurt someone else. Or if I read the news, I look at the, I look at the bigger picture around me, clearly this is not uh, what you're talking about out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So what happened? Where did everything go wrong? If God made such a glorious place and gave it to us and, and created a beautiful relationship built on genuine friendship and trust, how did things go so terribly wrong? And who's to blame? And is there any way to fix any of this? Well, the first thing I think we need to note is that we all still bear some of the image of God. It has been scarred. It has been marred. But you can look around the world and clearly see the image of God impressed around us. If you look at the ancient wonders of the world, the, the pyramids uh, in Egypt, how, how can you not see the image of God in that creation and all the, the, the years and decades and, and, and generations it took to build those? You see the creative mind of man as a reflection of the image of God. How can you look at, at modern times and see some of the amazing medical breakthroughs that have happened? See some of the incredible technology. We could do a pod, we could do a live podcast of, of this service and people uh, in, in uh, Argentina could watch it instantaneously. I mean, what, what technology is doing today speaks to the fact that God is creative and, he's, and we still bear some of that imprint. I saw some cookies from one of the local bakery laying on the back table and some over there and they're like this big. That speaks to the creative power and the sweet tooth of God, right? Okay. It speaks all of these things, all these glorious inventions and, and these breakthroughs in technology and, and the compassion that we see from time to time in people and how we, how we care for one another, how we, how we go out of our way. We can still see the image of God, but it is broken. Because just as much as there's the ability to create, there's the ability to destroy. Just as much as we have some capability within us to love one another, we also have a tremendous capacity for hatred and bigotry, and intolerance. And so we see the brokenness of this world very clearly. I did a little bit of research this week on the, uh, some of the, the vital crime statistics in our country. Last year in the United States alone, not around the world, but just in the United States alone, there were 16,000 murders. 16,000 murders. Two-thirds of them committed by people who knew each other or were related to one another. There were 90,000 rapes in the United States alone last year. $390 million lost to armed robbery where somebody said, stick them up and give me your money. $14.3 billion in property theft. So someone saw a car that somebody else owned and instead of saying, hey, I'll pay you for that or going to buy their own, they, they said, I'm going to wait till you go to bed and I'm going to sneak over here and I'm going to take it and I'm going to make it my own. $14.3 billion lost to property theft in one year alone just in the United States. That got me thinking. And so I went to the FBI website 
and I looked up the, uh, the 10 most wanted list. That's something that has been in place for a lot of years now. And I, and I read about each one of those people, each of those individuals, 10 individuals that were listed on that site. And, and I would like to tell you a little bit more about that, but I can't even speak about some of the things that were written there. It would be very inappropriate for some of our younger ears to hear that it's that bad, right? The world is broken, friends. And it doesn't, doesn't take me to stand up here and convince you of that. You and I see that every day of our lives. And the question is, what happened? Well, what I want us to think about this morning is, what does God say happened? What does the, the, the scripture say happened? And how does that inform our conversation with others when we speak about the hope that is within us? We're going to spend our time this morning in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to give you five observations about what God says happened that got us to the place where we are today. The first thing is that humanity ended up believing a liar instead of the person who told the truth. So here, here Adam and Eve, and Adam's standing next to Eve. We know that later on. She happens to be the one having the conversation, but he's not absent. He's right there. And she comes face to face with Satan, who is there to try to drag her in a different direction. And he says to her, did God actually say Could God be so mean-spirited as to say, you can't have any of the fruit in any of the trees in the garden? Look at that sentence carefully. Satan takes a little tiny piece of truth and he mixes it in with an unbelievable lie. Is God really trying to starve you to death? (laughs) Is God that mean? You see, the liar is hard at work. The woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, if you go back and you read Genesis 2, God never said you can't touch it. He said, don't consume it. Don't eat it. So Eve is already on a bit of a slippery slope. And notice that Adam doesn't speak up and and help correct. Adam doesn't say, Eve, wait a minute, we can touch it. We're just not supposed to eat it. Adam is, for whatever reason, uh, I, I don't know if he's thinking about the ball game the next day or what, but he is disengaged in this conversation. Satan's reply is another lie. You will not surely die. Come on, what kind, of, what kind of God would do that kind of thing, right? And he begins to weave this lie. Jesus says in John chapter 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth abiding in him, right? And we see this in this passage. There, there, there's just this notion of, you know what, God said you would die, but you know what, that's not true. He's holding something back from you. Now, something doesn't happen here, right? What doesn't happen here is Eve doesn't consider the source. Eve doesn't say, now, wait a minute, you're on the other team and I'm with, I'm with God, my creator. Let me go check on your credentials before I get into a further conversation with you. Eve doesn't pause to stop and think, nor does she ask for any proof. Well, Satan, how do you know that if I eat that fruit, I won't die? What's your experience been? Where's the objective data that I can look at to verify if what you're telling me is a truth or a lie? There's none of that. Nor does she just dismiss him out of hand. She say, you know, I know who you are and you just need to get out of here. I'm not going to listen to any of your nonsense, right? She slowly gets sucked into this conversation. Now, we're not throwing rocks at Eve this morning, right? Because if I had been there, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. Satan is slippery and and he's good at what he does and he tricks her into going down a pathway that is built upon a lie. 
when our youngest son, Jordan, was growing up playing hockey, I noticed early on, and the kids kind of play with the same group of kids all, all through all the way up to high school, and I noticed about two or three years of playing with one particular uh, young man on Jordan's team that this kid was, I mean, like at eight years old, he was a genius at getting like three or four of his teammates to do something they shouldn't do, but he would kind of be off to the side and he wouldn't be involved. And then they would get in big trouble. And you see, he would just kind of sit over on the side and he'd smile. He was like this evil puppet master. It was just amazing. And, and, I, and, I, and I warned Jordan, I said, now, you know, when, when so-and-so tells you, you know, to, you might want to stop and think about that. Literally later on in high school, Jordan said to me, you know, dad, remember we had that talk a long time ago? So-and-so, he's still like that. He's still trying to get people to go down a pathway, but he never, ever gets in trouble himself, right? There's, there's the mind of Satan, right? I want to get you in trouble. I want to get you thinking the wrong thing. When Satan's put in charge, he's all about destruction. He's all about brokenness. He's all about creating angst. And so the, the first observation here is that we're believing not just a lie, but we're believing a liar. Secondly, is we get tricked into assuming the worst. Look at verse, verse, uh, verse, verse worse. Verse five. Satan continues to talk. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What is Satan saying? God doesn't want you to have the best. God wants to oppress you. He wants to hold you down. Now we're back to Whitman's quote, right? He's just out to look for revenge when you mess up. He doesn't really care about you. You should go ahead and eat that fruit because he knows that when you do, you'll actually become a God yourself. And again, the notion here is is built on a lie that God is selfish, that God is oppressive. But neither Adam nor Eve ask for any evidence. They don't ask for any proof, and they don't stop to think about their former circumstances. They don't stop to think about how God has created them and how he's brought them together. Adam forgets about the first day he met Eve when he breaks out into song and he can't wait to just spend the rest of his life with her. And he forgets the fact that God gave him that gift. And Eve has forgotten the fact that, that Adam and her get along perfectly well to the fact that they walk around naked all day and they're not even ashamed at all. They're that, their intimacy is that good. They forget all of that. And they forget that God gave that to them as a gift because he loved them, because he cherishes them. He holds them closely to his heart. And so they begin to assume the worst. The third observation is not only they believe a liar, assume the worst, but they ignore a friend's warning. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what does she do? She takes and she eats. What does she ignore? She ignores the advice of a friend, right? God, out of love, said to Adam and Eve, don't eat this tree. It will kill you, right? If you have a dear friend, if you have a beloved friend that you've maybe known a long, long time and you really trust them and you know that you can trust them, maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's a childhood friend you've had since they were, you know, you've been buddies since you were really, really little. And they say, please don't do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to harm you. It's going to hurt you, right? Chances are you're going to stop and say, you know how to think about that because I know you love me. And that's what eludes Adam and Eve. They ignore the warning of their friend. They don't reflect on all they have. They don't look around and take stock. They simply get tunnel vision and look only at the fruit and think it looks pretty inviting, which leads them to my fourth observation, the rejection of God's friendship. So she took of the fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her 
and he ate. It looked good. So they chose to ignore their friend. They chose to ignore their creator. They assumed that they knew best and they decided that they would live for instant gratification. I want to be like God. In a world, they became very childish. They became centered on just what they want, when they want it. And you, you see this in little teeny tiny ones, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. They have, they, they have to learn things like sharing, right? They have to learn that they're not the center of the universe. You know, I think one of the, the most eye-opening, difficult, traumatic experiences is going to preschool and have to learn to play with other kids <laughs> and that all the toys aren't yours, right? So, sooner or later, within 10 minutes, somebody's going to get bashed on the head with a Tonka truck, right? It's just going to happen, right? And here are Adam and Eve acting very childish. The fruit looks good. I've forgotten all else. I've believed a lie. Let's have lunch. And we see what happens when we reject God's friendship. When we insist on having it our way, even in a perfectly beautiful created world that's been given to us as a gift. And then there, there's, there's this terrible discovery, right? It's immediate and it's awful. The eyes of them were both open. And they knew in a different level than they had ever known before. And in a a very negative way, instead of a very positive way, they knew that they were naked. What did they do with this immediate and terrible discovery? They, they, They realized that something has gone terribly amiss. And how do they respond? Is the first thing out of their mouths, you know what, we need to get God's help. We need to go to, go to our father and find out, you know, what could, how this could be corrected and how this can be fixed. That's not what happens. But the first damage control team in history, what choice do they make? They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. In other words, they cover and they hide, right? Think about it if you've ever come home and the kids have been playing and something's been broken. Or think about maybe a time when you broke something and you hear mom or dad walking in the door, right? Why does all of a sudden everybody scatter? Why does all of a sudden everybody run to their room? Or why does everything, the first thing they do is they point to the other one and say, he did it or she did it. Why? Because we've been running and hiding ever since. Why don't our children rush into our arms and say, mother, father, I have broken the lamp and I'm here to confess. And I use my little brother's forehead to break the lamp. And father is taking him to get stitches and I'm here to beg for, right? It just doesn't happen, right? But you know, you get confronted by your boss at work and your boss says, you know, we got to deal with this. And you say, wait a minute, that's not my fault. And you begin to run and hide. You begin to pull back. You begin to disengage. We're really great at this. We're so good at covering and hiding. That's what happens when we violate God's friendship, which leads ultimately to the blame game. And we've been playing this for years, right? The Lord God called to the man. Where are you? God knew where he was, but he's given Adam a chance to confess. He's given Adam a chance to come to his dad and sit down with him, his father, his creator, and say, here's what's happened. And, and we've broken and we're so sorry. What, what, what can we do to make this right? Or can you help us make this right? But that's not what happens. God has to call out, where are you? I heard the sound, you, the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Also notice the self-centeredness, right? He doesn't say I was looking out for Eve and I was embarrassed for both of us. He simply talks about himself, right? And then he goes on to say this. 
right? God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So again, God gives a second opportunity. God knows exactly what has happened, but God's giving Adam a chance to say, you know what, Lord, I've messed up and I need to come towards you. I need to not run and hide and cover up. I need to actually allow my sin to be exposed for what it is so that we can find out if there's a way to deal with it. How does Adam respond to the second invitation? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate, right? What's he saying? It's your fault. (laughs) It's not my fault. If you had never given me this woman, we would not be having this conversation right now. So God, that's your fault, not mine, right? If you don't hear your own voice in this, you're not really paying attention. Boy, I I can hear my voice in this, right? And I hear my voice in Eve's, right? So God looks at Eve and he gives her a chance. What's this that you've done? What's happened here, Eve? Is there something you would like to say to me? Yeah, the serpent deceived me, right? And by the way, you created the serpent. Now that's the Tom Ricks putting that in there. But again, we're playing this blame game. And this this happens all the time, right? Come home, you say, you know, let's go. You got to be ready. Come on, we got to go. And she says, well, I'm not quite ready. Uh, And don't yell at me. Oh, I wouldn't be yelling at you if you were ready to go. Well, I would be ready if the kids right? Hadn't, hadn't messed up and, and been running around the house like crazy. Well, if you'd started a half an hour early, you could have gotten the kids under control. Well, if you'd come home a half an hour early, you could have helped get the kids under control. Well, I'm out earning a living and I don't know why you're bothered by that. Well, if you'd stop doing that and care about, and all of a sudden you can't even remember where the conversation began, right? Right? The blame game. That's what our first parents passed on to us. And from that very moment, two things have been unequivocally true in human history. The first is this, that the image of God has been damaged beyond humans' ability to repair. Sin is now the norm and death is universal. There's nothing we can do now to fix this problem. Once our parents rejected the notion that it was their responsibility and we understand the notion that it's our responsibility through them, once that happened, our image of God is damaged. It's not, it's not taken away, right? Those, those beautiful cookies are still there, right? We're, we're having medical breakthroughs. We see compassion. We see acts of kindness. The, those things are certainly still there. We haven't lost all of the image of God, but we also see terrible, awful human decisions of death and murder and destruction, right? It, it's all come crashing down around us and we cannot fix it. Sin is now the norm. Death is universal. The second thing that has been unequivocally true since that very moment, the thing that humans hate worse above anything else in all of the universe is admitting their own guilt. I have literally sat with people who destroyed their marriage rather than admit that they were wrong. I almost destroyed my own marriage because I wasn't willing to admit that I was guilty, that, it was, that I stood condemned correctly. That was the right verdict. I wanted to make excuses and I wanted to blame others. I've seen people leave really great jobs because they couldn't admit that they had made a mistake and that they were in the wrong. I've seen people bankrupt their families, vilify others, and all of us who are parents are very good at passing on to our children the ways to make excuses and blame others to the extent that we will murder our brother before we will admit we are wrong. We will start and go to war before we will admit 
we are wrong. And ultimately what that leads to is the way humanity answers that question today. Generally speaking, the way the secular world answers the question is it's God's fault. It's not mine. And brothers and sisters, that is the pickle. (laughs) That is the condition in which we find ourselves this morning. The condition of this world is our doing. The responsibility lays at the feet of humanity. Corruption and death live in my heart and your heart. And until I accept responsibility, and until you accept responsibility for our guilt, we will never ask the question, could God forgive and be gracious? We would much rather stand up and applaud when Walt Whitman says, God is mean-spirited, pugnacious bully, bent on revenge against his children for failing to live up to his impossible standards and clap our way all the way to the grave. The sad part of that is when we see our culpability, when we willingly accept our responsibility as breaking friendship with God as scripture teaches us, There's a surprising and gracious and joyful truth to be discovered. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this hard word. It's not easy to preach and it certainly isn't easy to listen to, I imagine. So much easier to blame you. It is so much easier to blame others and it's so much easier to live our entire existence based on a lie from the best liar that ever walked around. Father, I pray that we would understand that the first step up is down. (laughs) Acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging that it's us who's broken faith with you and not the other way around. Because once we do acknowledge that, your word tells us that there is a hope. There's a reason for the hope because you refuse to let us have the last word. You refuse to let our corruption and our sin be the final statement. But Father, I pray in the days and weeks ahead that as we continue in this series, that we would be delightfully surprised again or maybe for the first time of how your compassion ultimately wins. But you call on us to confess to you the reality of the situation, so that you can bring healing. Father, do that work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.